Welcome to the Westminster Chapel podcast. For more information and to support our mission to London and beyond, please visit westminsterchapel.org.uk. Have you ever missed the beauty of a person, a place, maybe an object that should have been obvious to you right from the outset? If that's you, why don't you go in the chat and just say, yes, that's me. Please don't mention the person's name because they might get offended by that if they're in our church family and watching. It's not helpful. Um, You see this a lot in Hollywood movies, the famous movie makeover scene moments, going back to My Fair Lady, Audrey Hepburn's transformation, the character that she plays, Eliza Doolittle, to Anne Hathaway in The Princess Diaries, Miss Congeniality, Sandra Bullock, and so on. And the typical plot line is dowdy, frumpy, uncool person through a makeover is transformed into this jaw-dropping, dazzling beauty. Now, leaving aside the fact that it's a really wrong, I think, definition of of beauty. Beauty is far more important that's inside than it is on the externals, that they are actually also already beautiful. I mean, this is a Hollywood actress, a successful Hollywood actress. And sadly, in our culture, if they weren't attractive, they probably wouldn't be successful. And the beauty is already there. Just we can't see it. I think the same is true of the church, that many of us see the church as dowdy, frumpy and uncool. We see the church in its pre-makeover state. Now, that may be because of us as a church that we don't reveal the beauty of the church enough. And I would say, yes, we're guilty of that in some way. But the way out of that is that we would be able to see the church, not so much the people outside the church, but we ourselves, the church, would be able to see more clearly the beauty of the church as God intended her to be, free from all the kind of traditions and trappings of men that have come upon it over time to revel in its beauty. And in doing that, that the beauty of the church would shine and rise forth. And this is what this first century prayer that finishes the chapter that we've been studying, chapter one of the letter called Ephesians. It says in its prayer, this request that the eyes of our hearts would be enlightened, that there would be a a new seeing, that there would be an unveiling, a, a revelation that we would see with God's eyes, the glory and beauty of the church. This whole series has been about silencing shame. And to silence shame, we need to understand who we are individually, to some extent, in Christ, that we are beloved, we're adopted, we're redeemed of God. And this is the ultimate truth about us. But we must remember that all of these statements in Ephesians chapter one are in the plural, they're your statements. And to really silence shame, we must see the beauty of the body that we are a part of. So this message is for everyone who feels at times dowdy, frumpy and uncool, because in Christ, we, you, are more dazzlingly beautiful than you ever dreamed possible. That's because of the head that you're attached to, the sovereign power of God. It's because of the body 
you're part of that the privileged participation in the body and with God himself. And it's because of the feet that you are standing on. This is the divine purpose, the adventure of mission that we get called to. This all comes out of these final verses, verses 22 to 23, which the brilliant former minister here at Westminster Chapel, Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones, said in many ways, these could be the greatest words that the great Apostle Paul ever wrote. So we need to listen very carefully to what God is saying in them. Not least as well, because people are vying and fighting and competing all over the place for names and titles, giving large sums of money and making great sacrifices, sometimes just to get close to a celebrity so that the fame and success of that celebrity would rub off on them. I read an article in the Evening Standard about Richard Dawkins, that he charges $100,000 for people to have lunch with him, the celebrity atheist. The article finishes, though, with a wonderful question. How much did it cost to break bread with Jesus? Well, of course, at one level, it costs nothing. That's what the article, I think, is alluding to. But simply by faith in Jesus, this faith, which itself is a gift of God to us. It's not about good works. It's not about being a good person. None of that, that God will eat with whoever humbly seeks to eat with him and have fellowship with him. Wow. It costs nothing, but at another level, it costs everything. It cost Jesus on the cross, God dying in your place as your substitute, taking the full wrath of the punishment for our wrongdoing, your wrongdoing, your sins upon himself, that we see in that how vile and, and deserving of judgment that we are, but we see how loving and embracing of God is, that he would endure all of that for us. It's extraordinary. It cost Jesus God everything, that it would cost you nothing, so that you could have communion, union, fellowship with God himself, Jesus, who Time magazine calls the most persistent symbol of purity selflessness and love in the world. He's the greatest celebrity that you could ever spend time with. And through union with him, he allows all of his goodness, all of his success, if you like, all of his spiritual beauty and magnificence to come through that channel of association, union and relationship to us to silence and destroy all of the bad associations that so often we let define us. I am rubbish. I am ugly. I am unworthy. All of that noise gets silenced by the greater association we have in Jesus Christ. So this is a message for everybody who's feeling pretty weak, pretty feeble, embarrassingly empty. I tell you, there is so much hope in these words for all of us. Here's the first point. It's about our head, knowing and really seeing who you are attached to, the sovereign power of God. Four big picture points to start with about Jesus, our head. First, he is the pre-incarnate creator of all things with the Father and the Holy Spirit. Second, he is the incarnate saviour. He doesn't just stay in heaven out of compassion and love, comes from heaven, God comes from heaven to earth to take up residence amongst us to save us. The third thing, he is the risen champion. He dies on the cross. He defeats death. But he doesn't stay dead. He's raised to life and seated above all power and authority. 
He is superior to all things. Such is the excellency of his majesty. The fourth thing develops that, that Jesus is the ruling king. Verse 22 begins, and everything, all things are put under Jesus's feet. Jesus isn't just superior to everything and everything is inferior to him. It's also subject to him. Jesus is filling all things, the whole universe, with his good, pleasing and perfect rule. But get this, it says that Jesus was given, gave Jesus to the church, that Jesus is using all of the rule and his power. He's shaping and stewarding all of it in order to bless the church. Wow. Wow. Let's look at this idea of head. There's three things about this. First, that the head is the control center of the person. So Jesus sends the right signals to help us to see, to savor, to serve him. It's also the brains of the outfit. It's got all the wisdom to help us flourish and thrive. And then he he knows, the head knows all, all things. Jesus doesn't just have sympathy, doesn't just have pity for all that you go through. He knows you in a way of sort of ultimate empathy because he became like you and he endured the same trials, challenges, sufferings that, that you experience. So when you go through those things, he can help you because he's been on the inside of them. I love the way this picture of the head and the body is fleshed out by all the other pictures that God gives us in Scripture. The vine, Jesus, the vine and the branches life-giving sustenance coming as we abide and remain in him. Jesus as the cornerstone that our, and we're the bricks. Our strength comes as we are gathered around him, stay close to him. He makes us strong. And then also that he's the bridegroom and we're the bride, that this speaks of his amazing love for his church. I'm jumping ahead a little bit, but bear with me for a moment. Imagine that someone comes up to me and says, Howard, I like you but I don't like your wife, your bride, Holly. Now, I would have to use all my strength not to want to hit them in that moment and get arrested. Thankfully, no one's ever said that kind of thing. How could they? Well, this is a little bit like what it is with the church. See, if you insult my wife, you insult me because we're joined. We're one flesh. If you insult the church, then you insult Jesus because they're joined, the head and the body together, the bridegroom and the bride. This is dangerous because many people will say today, I like Jesus, but either with their words or their actions will say, I don't like his bride, his church. They're not really committed to her. Let's change the illustration a little bit and say it's a bit like, a, say, a person who's dating someone else and they're not really committed to them. They're just sort of on the fringe. You know, it's nice for a while, just having a little bit of fun with this person. Um, not Just a bit of an add-on to my life and all that kind of stuff. It's not not, not right. Now, if, if they did that to my daughter, I would be furious. If they're doing this whole sort of thing of just looking for something better to come along, and you know, in their mind, someone more beautiful, clever, and so forth, just, you know, Sunday, yeah, I'm meant to be at church, but this better thing has come along. I'm meant to be at life group tonight, but this better thing in my mind has come along. Wow. We're not seeing in those moments the beauty of the bride of Christ and the church and the way that God sees her. We're missing something. How precious the church is to God. Don't diss the bride that God himself 
delights in. Love her in the way that God loves the church. Be present, engage, love one another in the church family, serve with all your heart. How do we experience more of this headship? Well, it comes from surrendering to God. From recognising that most of our lives we spend trying to be in control and God spends most of our lives wrestling that control back from us because it's not good for us. Jesus must be the head. We must not. This is true not just at an individual level but at a church level. Jesus must be the head, the senior pastor of Westminster Chapel and I must not. We must care more about his person than our plans. In this coronavirus crisis season that we've been in, I believe that God has been doing something different to what maybe some of us would have hoped for. Perhaps we hoped, like a lot of us did, for a season of advance and growth and success as we might understand it in numbers and in the world's idea. And now we've got no idea where the numbers are at. But God, I believe, has been doing something vitally important. He's been pruning us as individuals, pruning us as a church, getting us ready for future growth, reshaping us around what really matters. His person above our plans. Plans matter, but his person comes first. We must know him well. We must desire him. We must seek to pray together uh, with each other to him. That's what really matters. So here's the question. Who is the head of your life right now? Is it Jesus or is it you? One way to find out is to just take a check and just see how much of the vine giving sustenance, the cornerstone strength, the you know, the bridegroom love, the head kind of knowing you, heartfelt experience, receiving the right signals to serve and the wisdom to flourish. How much of all of that are you really experiencing? Because if that's really dropped off and become quite diluted in your life, it's a sign that you've been seeking to be in control and you need to repent, turn around and let Jesus be the head. And we're going to do that right now, trusting in God for a holy moment for every one of you watching. Lord God, come. Meet with us. Forgive us for seeking to be in control, for seeking to be the head. Today, we turn from that and we hand back control to you. We thank you that you are our head and we ask you to be the head of our lives, of our families, of this church, Westminster Chapel, for your glory. Amen. Point two, body. Seeing and delighting in what you're a part of, the privileged participation that we have. I've got four sub points here. The first of those is that whatever body you have, you're stuck with it because you're stuck to it. It's pretty unusual. Something's usually gone very wrong if a head seeks to harm, cut off or remove part of its own body. That would be very counterproductive. And so this head body togetherness speaks of the permanence of a Christian's relationship with Christ, that love will never be broken. Nothing can separate you from God's love. Yes, you may backslide, but ultimately you can never fall away. This is great assurance. Your salvation doesn't rest on you. When you're in the body, you stay in the body. 
The second thing to note is that every part of the body is filled with the head, that the head is the nerve center of the body and, and those nerves, that neural network connects to every other part of the body. And so Christ fills, the head fills every part of the body with himself. This is amazing. It means, firstly, that we are, according to 2 Peter 1, 4, divine partakers of the divine essence. We are given all the attributes and powers of Christ through being in union with him. I think that's pretty amazing. The second thing is it speaks of real closeness and intimacy. That If one part of the body hurts, not only does the whole rest of the body feel that, but Jesus, the head, feels that too. Paul knew this. In Acts chapter 9, when he was converted on the Damascus Road, he'd been persecuting and involved in the killing of Christians, the church. And Jesus says to him, why are you persecuting me? That's the closeness and intimate connection that we get to enjoy. The third part to note of this body image is that the body is made up of many parts, but they're to work together in unison. Paul writes about this in 1 Corinthians chapter 12. And I love Eugene Peterson's translation of this, or paraphrase rather, uh, in, his, in his book, The Message. Your body has many parts, limbs, organs, cells, but no matter how many parts you can name, you're still one body. It's exactly the same with Christ. By means of his one spirit, we all said goodbye to our partial and piecemeal lives. We each used to independently call our own shots, but then we entered into a large and integrated life in which he has the final say in everything. I want you to know and uh, I want you to think about how all this makes you more significant, not less. A body isn't just a single part blown up into something huge. It's all the different but similar parts arranged and functioning together. If Foot said, I'm not elegant like hand embellished with rings, I guess I don't belong to this body. Would that make it so? If ear said, I'm not beautiful like eye, limpid and expressive, I don't deserve a place on the head. Would you want to remove it from the body? If the body was all eye, how could it hear? If all ear, how could it smell? As it is, we see that God has carefully placed each part of the body right where he wanted it. But I also want you to think about how this keeps your significance from getting blown up into self-importance. For no matter how significant you are, it is only because of what you are a part of. An enormous eye or a gigantic hand wouldn't be a body but a monster. What we have is one body with many parts each its proper size and in its proper place. No part is important on its own. If you're a believer in Christ, you have a really, really important part to play in the body of Christ. You may be doing it already. We want to encourage and strengthen you in that. If you're not sure what your part is right now, we've got a form that you can fill in. It's in the chat. The details are there. Um, on the Church Online platform. We'd, we'd love for you to discover that. Email the results to someone you know, a friend, your life group leader, one of us as elders of the church. We'll try our best to help you find and play your part. We're not just talking about filling a slot, a role on a rotor. No, no, no. We're talking about how God has made and wired you to make a massive impact 
over the whole sphere of human existence. The fourth point here, the fourth point, is that a body needs exercise. We're not totally dependent on the head in that sense. You know, we have a part to play. It's not just head moves, we're going to move, sort of automaton. No, God privileges us with a role to play. And we do that role better if that muscle is strong and well exercised. If we use, if we strengthen and exercise the power that God has already put in us. And as we do that, he will entrust us with more power to flow through us. Now, those four points were important, but this is the one I would love you to really take hold of. It's the privilege here of being given the opportunity to fill out God's purposes in the world. We do this in two ways. First as recipients, that God fills us as individuals and he fills us as his church. He is, if you like, taking the kind of skeleton of our lives individually together and he's fixing the broken bones and the wrong alignment. He's putting us together and he's adding flesh to that and strength to that and gifting and anointing to that and clothing us with his glory and splendor to make us that beautiful fitting bride for him. We we. We are privileged to be recipients of the filling out, but we also are contributors. This is pretty amazing. We're contributors. Ah, hold on a moment. Um, how can we contribute to the completion of Christ? Yes, God, certainly he completes us. How could we ever complete Christ? Because Christ, you're right, in his divine essence, as fully God, he's totally complete. Um, in, in that sense, he's sufficient. He needs and wants of nothing. That's why his love is so beautiful, because he doesn't need love in return. He can just purely love in a, in a genuine altruistic way. But as a bridegroom, he is incomplete because he needs a bride. And so God has planned for us, the church, to be vital. He's chosen to make us this essential <laughs> he's given us this this privilege to, to fill out christ and his role as bridegroom by being the bride the church by, by being beautiful and honoring him and, and responding rightly to his love in the way that we live this is astounding that such ignoble people could be given such a noble purpose wow and it should stir us to worship which is what we're going to do right now
seeing where you're going, seeing the greatness of the divine purpose you've been caught up in, seeing the grandeur of the mission of God, the greatest adventure in the world. Ah, but before we get there, let's backtrack just for a few moments, just to recognize what we've done. We've seen the bigness of God, the great headship of Christ, who he is. And in seeing his bigness, we see our smallness. We're put in our place. And that's a good thing because it kills our pride. But God doesn't leave us there. God, through faith in Jesus Christ, as we're united with him, takes us from our smallness and starts to lift us up into his bigness and makes us big for him. He fills us up with all of his gifts and power and enabling to go and proclaim his glory to the world. There's so much significance in this phrase, under his feet. Right at the start of the Bible, Genesis chapter 1, we see in the beginning is God that he is forming and that he is filling the world. Days of creation match. Day one matches day four and so on. I don't have time to explain that. Go, go check it out after the message. And then God invites humankind to follow in his footsteps, to fill out the world. He does it through, sometimes it's called the cultural mandate. Genesis chapter one, verse 28, he gives rule and authority to man. And in Genesis chapter 2, verse 15, he says, tent and keep the garden, to cultivate it. In some senses, we're meant to identify, to beautify all of existence for his glory. Psalm 8 puts this brilliantly, and I think Paul had this in mind when he was writing our verses in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 3. When I look at your heavens, God, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him and the son of man that you care for him? Again, the bigness of God revealing our smallness. Verse five, yet you've made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honour. You have given him dominion over the works of your hands. You've put all things under his feet. And you add Genesis chapter three, Verse 15 to this, that Christ is prophesied, this kind of proto-evangelion, that the, the, the foreshadowing of Christ's coming, that he's going to stamp on Satan's head and undo the curse with his foot, the curse of evil and, and suffering and all the nasty, destroying, darkening effects of sin in the world are being undone. So we start to understand the mission of the church here that this cultural mandate and the great commission of Matthew 28 to go and make disciples of all nations, they're really two sides of the same coin. And God is inviting us, the church, to continue this mission of, of blessing to the world, to beautify the world, to make heaven come down to earth, to make heaven tangible so that God can be made visible, to really walk in his footsteps or walk on his feet in the authority that he has. To give you a picture of this, like a game my kids love to play with me, is that they'll come up and they want me to hold their hands and then they'll want to stand on my feet as we walk together. Now they have to do a bit of work in that. They can't just stand there rigid. They've got to walk at the same time. They love walking around. I think that is what the mission of the church is like. 
that we get to walk on Christ's feet in his authority, in his power over everything. As we seek to bring beauty, beautify the world, undo the curse, be salt and light in the mission of God that he's called us to, to make everything that is dowdy, frumpy and uncool glorious. All things. Four times in these verses, the word all comes. All, 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 all. Reminds me of a great quote from the brilliant Abraham Kuyper. He was a Dutch theologian. He's a kind of newspaper man, owned his own newspaper business, and he became prime minister of his nation. And he says, there is not a single square inch in the whole domain of our human existence over which Christ, who is sovereign over all, does not declare, cry, mine. Everything matters. Our mission is to be unashamed of God, unashamed of the gospel, unashamed of the church, his bride, unashamed full stop because of who we are in Christ. Remembering how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news. Finally, the opportunity. I don't want us to be opportunistic, but I believe that through COVID-19, God is giving the church and Westminster Chapel a wonderful opportunity to march forward with the kingdom, his kingdom of joy, of hope and of love, with our feet fitted with the gospel of peace, to bring this good news to every person, to every place, to every sector of society. I was reminded recently by David Stroud, leader of the Everything Conference, that a not dissimilar time of disarray, of despair and discouragement had gripped our nation. The year was 1835. There was huge numbers of rising population and overcrowding problems and rising numbers of, of poor, great poverty and inequality, massive gap between the rich and the poor, such there were protests on the streets and even an attempted assassination just round the corner from our church in Hyde Park of Queen Victoria herself. And it was Christians who did the greatest work to bring transformation. We set up the Sunday school movement, this great initiative. Most children were not being educated. You had to have money to receive an education. So churches and had the idea of Sunday schools on Sundays. We would teach children to read and to, to write who would otherwise get that opportunity. And we would use a biblical curriculum. This is one of the greatest missional innovations of the church. It was phenomenal. Within decades, 80 percent of children in our country were being educated this way. The care for the poor resulted in the beginning of the first social workers. The recognition of Florence Nightingale established many, many nursing institutions as others wanted to follow in her footsteps. The Cadbury brothers set up a great business. They wanted to get the nation really off drinking too much gin. And so they established drinking chocolate to take its place as a substitute and set up right ways to care for their workers. The wealthy took responsibility as well. Said to be the richest woman in our nation at the time, Angela Burdett Coots. 
gave huge amounts of time and money. There's a school that's named after her just round the corner from our church. She helped fund and found the NSPCC because of child poverty. She did something about it. She helped um, establish Westminster Technical College to ensure there was a way for people to get jobs and, and work who otherwise wouldn't be able to, couldn't get the skills or the training. She gave huge amounts of money for the funding of cancer research through the Royal Brompton Hospital. She was loved because of her generosity. It's said on one occasion outside her house in Piccadilly that crowds gathered to applaud her for three hours straight. They called her the queen of the poor. I tell you, God is opening a door and he wants us to walk through it to be his blessing arms, his hands and his feet, to step forward in his authority, clothed with his righteousness, robed with it, clothed with power from on high, to bring glorious transformation to everywhere where there is need of every kind. Telling everybody, as we do so, the gospel, because we are unashamed of this gospel of the kingdom, which we will declare in word and deed, because it is the power of God for salvation for everyone who believes. Let's pray. Lord God, I ask you, Father, Son and Holy Spirit, to recommission us as a church take hold of us as a people, to awaken us, to help us to see the glory of your bride, to love you and to love each other and to love the church and the mission you've called us to, to give us your power, your attributes, to realise that we already have it, and that we would step forward with boldness and authority to make you famous in this nation, that people might come and stand and applaud, not the elders of Westminster Chapel, not even this great church and congregation, but they would applaud its King, Jesus Christ, for hour upon hour, as they see his glory manifested in his bride, the church. listening to sermon audio from Westminster Chapel. If you'd like to partner with us in making disciples and sharing the gospel, please consider making a one-off or regular donation. Visit westminsterchapel.org.uk forward slash giving to find out how.